Kira Koto, Ko Shri Blenka and Toko Inua. Welcome to the, the first session of Raising the Bar in Auckland, the home edition. I hope you're all comfortable at home. So for today's uh, Raising the Bar speaker, I'm delighted to uh, introduce a, a long-term colleague, a mentor, and a friend of mine, uh, Professor Andrew Schelling. Professor Schelling is uh, the Associate Dean of Research at the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland. He's the head of the Medical Genetics Research Group and is also the acting director of a recently um, formed Center for Cancer Research. His research is primarily interested in understanding the molecular changes that occur um, and during the development of genetic disorders with a particular interest on breast and gynecological cancer and reproductive disorders. And this is the work that I've been um, very lucky to be involved with uh, the last, for the last 12 years or so. His expertise in the field of genetics makes him the perfect candidate to bring you this discussion today on how genetics can, and as you'll hear, maybe can't be used for deciphering diseases. So I'd now like to welcome and hand over to your speaker today, Professor Andrew Schelling. Thank you, Sheree, for that very kind introduction. Tina koto, tina koto, tina koto katoa, ko Andrew Schelling aho. So welcome to this uh, presentation about the truths about genetic predisposition. Hopefully by the end of the talk, I'll give you a great appreciation of how genetic disease works and things to look out for. I guess I've been very fortunate. I've been involved in genetic research for, for the last 37 years. I've lived through the Human Genome Project that uh, was allegedly from the year uh, 1990 to 2003, but in effect, it was only actually uh, completed uh, last month. The last 8% took, took a number of years uh, to be able to complete because it was so complex. Also had uh, access to some very exciting new technology. Uh, ability to sequence DNA using next generation sequencing has, has been outstanding in the last few years. Um, and access to enormous computing power that's been necessary to be able to analyze um, genetics over the last little while. So in the last 30 years, we've seen some of the greatest advances in, in genetic disease study and research, and many of the most important genes have only been discovered just in the last few years. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about genetic disease, and to me that is something that runs in families. Things that run in families can be uh, really significant, really big, really important, uh, or they could be relatively minor. So there's a continuum, a spectrum um, of different types of genetic disease. I'm going to begin by talking about the, the, some of the most important, some of the, the big, important, deadly diseases where we've been able to uncover some, some of the genes that have been involved in those diseases. just want to be, begin by, by talking about um, the fact that my wife uh, hired a, a, a painter uh, the other day to, to paint my daughter's bedroom. Uh, he said he was a painter, but apparently he wasn't. But his father was a painter. Uh, it would appear that being a painter is not inherited because uh, he, he wasn't doing a very good job. Um, about 20 years ago, I was involved in a project where I was looking at a family of women who had ovarian cancer. And, and over three or four generations, nearly every woman in each generation developed ovarian cancer at a very young age, and many of them died. Uh, and what we're able to do is, is look at that family and identify a gene that was mutated in the family and be able to help the following generations to have a, make enormous difference in their lives and well-beings. So you can see that there is weak genetics and there's really hard genetics. And, and I'm just going to try and point that out to you over, over the next um, 30 minutes. Our DNA is made up of about 3.2 billion pieces of information that, are, that you could uh, call letters of the alphabet. They're made up of ACGT. Um, and they code the 25,000 genes that we have in our genome. The, the genes make different proteins that make it, all the cells and our, and our organs work in our body. Uh, 
if there's a spelling mistake somewhere along the way, and we know that we've got millions of, of spelling mistakes in our genome, some of them are relatively unimportant places, and some of them are smack bang in the middle of really important genes. Uh, and this uh, the spelling mistake we often refer to as a variant, and if it's a really significant variant, we call it a mutation. But some of the variants aren't very significant, um, and they might only have, have a mild effect on disease. When I first began studying uh, genetics, we, we understood very few diseases where there was a genetic component. Um, uh, and over, over the last uh, few years, that number has increased. Um, at the year 2000, we realized that we had been able to discover the genetic basis of about a thousand different genetic diseases. And I just checked um, in the, the so-called Bible, which is called the Online Mendelian Inheritance in Men, and presumably women as well, um, that's always been called OMEN. Um, I saw that there were 7,149 disorders where we had identified a gene. That's extraordinary. And, and there's been a rapid advance in the last few years. What we know is about one in 50 of us probably carry a significant genetic disease. Um, many of us will carry um, less significant genetic disease that, that may, may never see the light, light of day because the genes may be recessive in our genome and, and uh, never make it uh, to, to a disease status. But what we know is about one in 10 of those different genes that cause a disease, we can make a difference. Uh, and there's some sort of treatment that will either uh, cure the disease or, or remove most of the impact. So I think it's really important and significant. So I'm going to begin just with some examples of some really important genetic diseases that have influenced the way we think about um, genetic disease over the last few years. Um, so these are, uh, often occur in, in areas such as neurology, uh, cancer, heart disease, and a whole lot of other areas. We often refer to these as being monogenic, where just one uh, gene causes the disorder. Probably the most important of these genetic diseases is Huntington's disease. This is a really significant uh, disorder. It's neurological, um, and the gene for this was found in 1993, interestingly with a good friend of mine, Russell Snell, who's at the University of Auckland when he was spending time at the University of, of Cardiff in Wales. We all have a copy of the Huntington's gene, but some of us have a spelling mistake or a mutation in the Huntington's gene that causes this awful condition. What we see is progressive uh, deterioration in people and symptoms developing in their 30s and 40s and, and progressive uh, um, uh, loss of control and an early death. Just about everybody with a mutation will get the disease. Um, there's no escape. And it's so uh, the new technology, by looking at the type of mutations that have occurred, we can see that uh, we can almost predict to the year or the age that the person's going to be when they actually develop um, the disease. At the moment, it's not curable, but we've got people working in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences um, in the Centre for Brain Research under the guidance of Sir Richard Ball, who are doing um, uh, studies to try and find new treatments. Uh, interestingly, um, they had to make their, uh, their special sheep in Australia because our GMO laws in New Zealand didn't allow it to be done in New Zealand, and probably that's, that should be about to change fairly soon. The condition that I've spent the most time looking at is inherited breast and ovarian cancer. So this is where we see that cancer runs in a family more than what you might expect. This is really tricky for, for something like breast cancer because breast cancer is really common. One in eight or one in nine New Zealand women will, will develop breast cancer. So it's not uncommon to have more than one uh, family member with breast cancer and it's got nothing to do with genetics. But this is where I'm talking about where multiple generations have breast cancer and sometimes associated with ovarian cancer. They often occur at a much younger age than what you might expect. 
um, that may have um, multiple cancers in the same person, so both breasts involved, or perhaps breasts and, and ovaries involved. Um, sometimes we see men uh, a part of, the, uh, of these conditions, um, and if, if a man is involved, it does have breast cancer, he's probably got about 50% chance of being from a BRCA2 um, uh, mutant family. Um, so the two genes that, that are most strongly associated with inherited breast and ovarian cancer were found in the 90s, BRCA1 in 94 and BRCA2 in 95. And uh, that was a time that I, I was uh, um, working at the University of Oxford uh, and it was really exciting to see the development in, in, um, of these uh, two different genes. Prior to the knowledge of these two genes, a lot of people knew that they're from a cancer family and they would choose at a young age to have their breasts and the ovaries removed, regardless of not knowing what their genetic status was. After we were able to have these tests available, then the woman could get a test. So Angeline Jolly is probably the best example of this, a celebrity that was diagnosed with inherited breast and ovarian cancer. And she chose, rather than not to undergo surveillance, she actually chose to have her breasts removed first and then her ovaries removed later. And that virtually takes away all chance of the disease, not completely, um, but it does reduce it uh, dramatically. About one in 400 of us is estimated are a carrier of this gene mutation. As I've already said, we all have the gene, it's just that some of us have a spelling mistake in the gene. In some populations like the Ashkenazi Jews, 5% of their community actually have a mutation uh, in, in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes. But because there's a treatment, um, uh, which is rather radical, um, but it saves lives, then, then um, this has been acceptable to a lot of populations and it's led to a lot of unnecessary suffering and early death. Um, I used to do all the BRCA1 and 2 gene testing in New Zealand um, uh, a few years ago uh, and uh, we were able to have an impact in a large number of people's lives. Likewise, um, I also used to do the genetic testing for um, inherited cardiac disorders. And uh, one family I will never forget where we were able to make a difference in their lives. Um, a, young, a young man uh, was, uh, died unexpectedly on a sports ground. Uh, he, he was, he was only, only very young. Um, and we were able to ascertain that he probably was a good candidate for this condition, uh, an inherited cardiac disorder. And we were able to get hold of his DNA through the fact that he had a Guthrie card stored, a blood prick that's taken at birth. And we were able to get some DNA from that, from that uh, Guthrie card and analyze the DNA and find that he had a mutation. We were able to go back to the family because the family were concerned that the same thing would happen to the sister, that she might also uh, die unexpectedly as well. We were able to tell the family that she was clear, she didn't have the same mutation, but the mum was a carrier of the same mutation. Uh, and uh, she'd been feeling unwell at the time, uh, and we were able to put her on a simple uh, medication, beta blockers, that were able to change her life. So we were able in this situation to use the genetic information to make enormous difference to the well-being and, uh, and uh, long-term uh, health of that family. Another really important disease in New Zealand has been that of gastric cancer. So one of my uh, good friends and colleagues, uh, uh, Professor Perry Guilford from University of Otago, was involved in a study with a, with a Maori family that high, had high very rates of gastric cancer and a type of uh, um, breast cancer called lobular cancer. He was able to identify a gene called E-cadherin uh, that was mutated in these Maori families. Uh, and in collaboration with the families, they published uh, um, a publication in, in the journal Nature. Um, and of course, Stan Walker has highlighted uh, this recently that if you're uh, diagnosed as being uh, positive with, um, with a mutation in the E-cadherin uh, gene, 
then you are able to get a, a surgery um, to, to remove your stomach. Uh, and while that's extremely uncomfortable uh, and, and difficult to live with, at least that you're going to live um, a normal life for a period of time. So genetic testing for these big diseases um, are really, really life-changing. They're relatively precise. Um, we can get a pretty good idea what's going to happen. It's not perfect. Um, there are a few wrinkles along the way. Testing is now becoming really cheap. For a lot of these diseases, there's now potential for treatment. But there are ethical issues, as you can imagine. What age should we test other members of the family? Should children be tested? Is that information going to be damaging? Um, I was involved in, with the Huntington's family um, many years ago where, where that, the information to the children was damaging uh, and they just weren't able to accept it or, or understand what it meant for them at, at the time. There are also some other ways that we might consider treating some of these genetic diseases. My PhD many years ago was on gene therapy. So this is an idea that if you've got a, a defective or mutant gene, um, the, the traditional, so for example, diabetes, then you replace the defective um, gene, uh, the defective protein, which is insulin, by injecting yourself every day. So why not inject a normal copy of the gene uh, in, into your body and, and that way replace the defective gene? And the system that we used back then, many years ago, um, was using viruses uh, to, to carry the gene into the, into the person's body uh, and insert the, the good DNA and replace the defective DNA. Sounds like a perfect solution. Um, and uh, when I completed my PhD, which was 25 years ago, I announced to the Nelson Evening Mail, which was where my parents, which was my hometown, that, that a major medical journal, of course, um, that uh, this is going to be what everybody is doing in five years' time. Unfortunately, 25 years later, it's only just becoming common. Uh, there have been some deaths along the way um, where, where people, healthy people uh, died as part of some of the medical experiments. Um, the three that, that have died clearly from gene therapy experiments. So they've changed the type of virus that they've used, and it now seems to be some FDA-approved um, uh, gene therapy um, studies, uh, uh, treatments that are now approved. We have had the ability for a number of years to look uh, and remove uh, fetuses, uh, embryos, fetuses that, that, um, that are carriers of gene mutations through prenatal uh, diagnostic testing. This was uh, using things like um, amniotic fluid or a collection of chorionic villi samples. Um, but this was always quite traumatic. And uh, so once if the baby was found to be um, um, a gene carrier, uh, one outcome was, was to abort the baby. Another solution was to carry the baby, but be prepared for the condition as, um, as, it, um, as it arrived. We now have the ability to do something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where a couple would have to use IVF or in vitro fertilization. They'd have to create an embryo using um, the sperm and eggs. And then they would go through and check the embryos to see if it carried uh, a genetic mutation for the disease they're trying to avoid, something like a BRCA1 mutation or Huntington's disease. And then only replace in uh, the normal, uh, uh, the, the non-affected embryo and, and hope um, that was going to be okay. We now have a new technology called gene editing. Um, a technique we are using um, a technique called CRISPR-Cas, uh, where we, we now have the potential ability to go in and correct that gene mutation. This still isn't approved. Um, it's, it's, there's a moratorium on it. It hasn't stopped people in China using the technology to, uh, to gene edit uh, embryos um, and babies. Um, but, but most of the rest of the world, uh, it, it is illegal to do that. He was arrested, locked up for a period of time. 
In New Zealand, we've got another interesting ethical issue around about ethnicity, and that is that most of the genetics that we use in our everyday life are based on European populations. We don't know clearly um, some of the, uh, the genetic makeup of, our, of Maori and Pacific, and so our ability to uh, diagnose um, genetic disease in Maori Pacific populations is a little bit more difficult than it should be. Um, uh, and we, all of us involved in medical research in, in Auckland and, New, and around New Zealand want to reduce inequities related to health. Um, and clearly this is a situation where genetics is actually making inequities uh, potentially even worse. Um, there's a really important uh, project um, being undertaken by one of my colleagues, uh, Professor uh, uh, Chris Print, um, who is leading a group, uh, including Maori uh, colleagues. It's called Rakiora through Genomics Aotearoa that's trying to address the genomic issues in our Maori Pacific um, uh, folk, uh, and that will help with um, reducing some inequities. Now, an interesting thing turned up a little while ago, we were sitting in my office on a Friday night, uh, and I got a phone call from, from a woman in Australia who, who said, who was cold calling, she said, did you, were you aware that um, New Zealand was out of step with the rest of the world, that insurance companies can use genetic testing information to either raise premiums or not take up a premium at all? Uh, and so a group of us have got together um, and uh, written um, some newspaper articles uh, and uh, editorial to highlight this New Zealand, that we're out of step. This is not fair. We don't think it should be like this. And we would like a ban on the on insurance companies using genetic uh, testing uh, as a way to uh, influence premiums. I want to move now to the murky world, to the weaker genetics, um, uh, where, where we we look at certain diseases where we just see weak family history and enormous amounts uh, of uh, influence um, of environment. So the, we call this complex genetics or multigenic or multifactorial or polygenic, a whole lot of different things. It's, it's sort of the weaker end of genetics. Um, for example, um, we know in, in many situations it's more than one gene and a whole lot of environmental influence. So um, a condition such as uh, alcoholism, uh, there may be certain genes that, that influence alcoholism, but what if I don't drink? Um, that, that means that I'll never be exposed, that the environmental factors will never be exposed uh, to uh, the genetics that I have. In these situations, the, the spelling mistake is not enough to cause disease. It needs a whole lot of other genes to be involved um, uh, to, to sort of uh, all multiply uh, various factors um, and some interaction with the environment. So this includes common diseases like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and the types of, of uh, spelling mistakes are called, we call them polymorphisms. I, I'm trying to keep as much technical language out of this talk as possible, um, but they're weak uh, genetic effects. Um, and uh, we probably have four or five million each of these. Um, these different little changes, and sometimes they are in, the, in genes and have some mild influence. So if one of these genes is involved, it's called an association. It's not causal. It's, uh, um, pre it predisposes you to disease, but doesn't guarantee that you're going to get the disease. And this is where it's become a little bit confusing. In some diseases, these are, all these little tiny effects have all been joined together uh, and, uh, uh, and used as um, what we call a polygenic uh, a risk score. Uh, and in some diseases, the accumulation of all these little tiny things uh, can, can make a huge difference. So many 
common diseases have been studied in the last few years um, in a type of study that, again, this is the, this is the last, hopefully one of the last technical words I use, a genome-wide association study. And the best way I can explain this is that they throw an enormous net out through our genome to try and pick up all these tiny little factors. Um, and uh, I quite like anchovies on my pizza. It, they make them taste really nice, but you're not going to get a meal out of a tiny fish like an anchovy. So anchovies on a pizza are great, but they don't make a meal. So likewise, these little tiny gene variants that are found in these, uh, uh, in these complex uh, diseases, the common diseases, um, are important. They're associated with the disease, but they're not causal. They don't make the disease happen. And this has led to a lot of confusion um, uh, in, in, in the media uh, and uh, in the community. There's some really good examples of where it's made enormously important uh, uh, contribution. For example, in breast cancer, I've already talked to you about some of the really big genes, but when you accumulate some of the really tiny little gene factors, they actually make up about 18% uh, of, the of the component um, of, uh, of breast cancer. They're all helpful, but they're not terribly predictive. I worked on Crohn's disease several years ago, which is an uh, autoimmune disease. Um, it's, it's thought to be, have arisen due to the hygiene hypothesis. Uh, 100 years ago, some of these autoimmune diseases didn't exist, but they've become really clean since then. And, and, and some of these conditions are where the body is starting to fight against itself. And probably Crohn's disease fits into that paradigm. When I first started working on Crohn's disease, there was one gene associated with the condition. Using these fishing types studies, the, the uh, genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, we now have about 200 different genes that have been associated with the development of Crohn's disease. And some of these completely opened up new avenues of investigation. The idea that bacteria in our gut could interact uh, with our DNA uh, and, um, and, and uh, lead to the development of Crohn's disease wasn't really thought of. A molecular process called autophagy, which is the way that cells devour each other, was also found to be involved. So by using these types of genetic studies, um, association studies, we've been able to identify a large number of new genes that had never been thought of as being important and involved uh, and opened up new possibilities for understanding uh, knowledge and, and potentially new treatments. For obesity, we know that if you um, have two obese uh, parents, you've got an 80% chance of having an obese child, whereas with uh, normal weight uh, parents, only about 10% chance of having an obese child. So we know that genetics plays a large component of it. There are some really big genes that are involved in obesity, but there's some everyday genes that also are important. And um, there's one called FTO, that was identified uh, several years ago, that probably makes about three kilos worth of difference um, to, our, to, our, um, to our body weight. An interesting one has been the CREB-RF gene, which is uh, unique to our part of the world, which has only been found in Murray Pacific uh, individuals, uh, and it makes about five kilos worth of difference um, if, if you have the right uh, genes. Originally, it was called an obesity gene, but we now we think it actually might be related to, uh, to lean body mass. So uh, by having this gene, you're actually um, uh, 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 bigger and stronger, um, and uh, um, that, that may be the case in, in our Murray Pacific community. We now move into the world of lifestyle genetics, a very murky world. So we've, a lot of the things I've talked about today have, have been from hard genetics to soft genetics, but they've all been valuable. But there's a whole lot of other things, traits like um, not necessarily disease, things like baldness, food preference, freckles, addiction. Um, 
that now we have genes uh, have been associated with this and companies have been uh, such have been going direct to consumers and people able to spit into a tube um, and uh, and get information about these genes. I discovered that there was a gene, uh, well, uh, a condition called fear of public speaking. Um, and 802 genes have been associated with, um, I've probably got most of them working right at the moment. Um, uh, and, and, and so some of these associations are interesting, but not terribly important. Uh, it often, uh, using these types of genetic testing to target the worried well. They've been often poorly communicated what they mean uh, through the media and, and, and especially through social media. One of the controversial ones that's popped up in the, over the last few years is the gay gene. Um, I don't mind if there's a gay gene or not a gay gene, uh, but people have gone looking for it. And a, a recent study that came out just a few years ago, published in a really good journal, studying large numbers of people, found five hits. So there's no gay gene, but there's some weak associations. And the interesting biology behind these weak hits was that one of them was related to, to the sense of smell, and we know that attraction uh, is, smell is important in that. Uh, and the other gene, one of the other uh, associations found was that um, associated with male pattern baldness, which again speaks to some sort of hormone interaction. So there's some very controversial genes uh, and uh, um, that, and with some of the lifestyle genetics has been exploited by, by different companies that are going direct to consumers. I call this, refer to this as genetic horoscopes. They may be interesting, they may be real, not always based on robust science. Um, I can't believe there are 802 uh, gene targets affecting uh, fear of public speaking. I'm going to move now to um, the, the condition that was sort of highlighted in, in, in the um, abstract as part of this release, which is the age that you lose your virginity. Um, so this, at face value, seems sensational. Um, how could there be a gene that influenced uh, your, uh, your age at virginity? But if you really were to think about it, um, the age of puberty uh, is a very well-defined event in people's lives. If we go back 200 years, uh, people went through puberty age 18 or 19. Uh, now they go, um, men and women, uh, boys and girls go through puberty age 12 or 13. So th there's clearly some um, factors at, at play there, probably related to good health, uh, body weight that, that allow uh, puberty to happen earlier. Age at menopause is fixed. It hasn't changed for thousands of years. So what the study was really doing was, was they asked um, nearly 400,000 people about what age they lost their virginity, which is probably a, a marker for puberty. Um, and they found some really significant and robust associations. Very, very weak, but in that large number um, of, um, of patients, they're able to find a, a few hundred gene variants that seem to be clearly associated with the age uh, of losing your virginity. Um, some of those related to reproductive factors, hormone levels, for example, and some of the, the genes that they found were associated with uh, behavioral and, and psychiatric traits, such as risk-seeking behavior, um, ADHD, sociability. So some of the things they found sound really interesting to an academic like me, but aren't terribly important. They're not diagnostic. Uh, they're not going to be useful. You will never be able to predict reliably the age that you're going to lose your virginity by doing a gene test. It's just fun and interesting. It's still finished by turning everything upside down on its head and just give you two last examples of, about nature versus nurture. 
I read in the uh, notable uh, medical journal, the, 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 the Herald, uh, several years ago, that if you have both parents that smoke, you've got a 25% chance of smoking yourself. If one, only one parent smokes, only 11% chance. If no parent smokes, only 4%. So that doesn't that make you think, oh my goodness, uh, you, you just copy what your parents do um, and that, that familial influence dictates um, your behavior. Surely this lands firmly in the, in the area of nurture. However, so, um, since that notable article in, in, in the New Zealand Herald, um, gene uh, variants have been found in a gene called CYP2A6 uh, that related to nicotine metabolism. And it's clearly, it seems very clear that some individuals, based on their genetics, find it, cigarette smoking much more enjoyable and find it a lot harder to give up. So I would argue that underlying in that study, even though it looks like uh, it's all nurture, um, there is always going to be a genetic influence. And I guess my final example um, of uh, how genetics sometimes is overhyped um, is uh, a very interesting study done a few years ago, looking at Japanese that moved to Hawaii. And what they found is in, in two gener first generation and second generation, a doubling in breast cancer. And, and uh, for stomach cancer, they saw the exact opposite a halving and then a halving. Um, so you can't argue that genetics is, is at play in that example because genetics doesn't change in one or two generations. And this probably does always show that it's always influence of environment. So we know that uh, changing diet, um, moving away from a soy-based diet for the Japanese, uh, the role of phytoestrogens that seem to be protective against breast cancer. And in stomach cancer, the possibility of H. pylori, a bacteria in the stomach may reduce as they move uh, to a different country. So I hope that I've explained something today about the importance of genetic research it really, uh, and genetic testing. It has really lead, led to life-changing uh, information. Um, I also want to point out how, how involved the University of Auckland has been in some of this research. Many of us um, have been international uh, partners in many of these types of studies, and we're able to continue some of this research here in Auckland. We've got access to some of the best technology in the world, uh, and, uh, um, and some of the best people are here. Uh, we don't always have a, a, enough research funding uh, to do everything that we'd like, um, but we do a pretty good job here. We're really truly punching above our weight. Uh, and we really need to consider, we need to use this information to reduce the inequities uh, in our health system, uh, especially to, to Murray and Pacific, um, uh, to make a difference, to, to make sure that they always have access to this technology. So I hope that I've shown you today in um, a very short period of time that some of the genetics is really exciting. It's made, it's been life-changing. Some of the access to genetic testing is really important. Uh, we can really help people and families where, where disease does run in families. Um, uh, and, but there are other genetics at the other end that's a little bit fluffy and we, sometimes we just need to take them with a grain of salt um, and a lot of them aren't diagnostic or prognostic. So thank you for listening. And I see some uh, really good questions coming up. But I'm just going to Take a break there and hand back to uh, Cherie. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Some really great questions coming through and they're giving me lots of ideas <laughs> to, to grill Andrew. This is the time I get my own back. Um, in 2012, I uh, inherited a lecture from you, Andrew, and you introduced me to the lifestyle genetics testing company 23andMe. And... Um, this might be a company that a lot of people are uh, aware of that um, offers a, um, you, you sort of rub your cheeks and you spit in a tube and then you send it to America. 
and they will do a um, looking for these little variants in in your um, in your DNA, and then they send you a report back. And uh, there's some interesting things, and and you might be also familiar with Ancestry.com. They also offer this, so they tell you where you're from in the world. And um, so I um, had my test done in 2012 because of your lecture, Andrew, <laughs> um, because I thought it'd be an interesting talking point for the students. And um, uh, my Ancestry.com uh, or my Ancestry version is um, really quite boring because I'm 100% European. Um, and um, uh, there's some interesting um, traits that they now uh, bring through. Um, and I looked at it this morning and it was horrifying actually how how good some of them were in predictions. Um, they're not diagnostic or reliable. They give you a hint or a, I, I think of these variants as little sort of dimmer switches. Um, so one of the things was um, I'm more likely to have misophonia so hating chewing sounds, and that is evident every night in my house. So that's true. Um, I'm likely to at least have a little unibrow, <laughs> which I thought was rather insulting. Um, I'm likely to wake up at around 7.48 a.m. precisely, which I thought was very odd. Uh, likely to be bitten more often by mosquitoes and others, which I can confirm is very true. Um, so all these absolute, absolute gems. But... Um, they also, along with these traits, they offer the ancestry um, information. And um, you can also in America get slightly more concerning information, such as um, carrier status for genes such as BRCA1 and 2. So do you want to, um, because people might be familiar with these tests, these ancestry.com, 23andMe, do you want to comment on those a little bit, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> They're not terribly helpful. It's it's horoscopes. Um, yeah, the monobrow thing's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, perhaps you could just look in the mirror and work out whether you've got, got a monobrow rather than predisposed to getting one. Um, I mean, my 96-year-old mother uh, had a DNA test, which was looking for ancestry-type things. But that data is also going to be stored somewhere, uh, and uh, there is some concern about genetic privacy. Uh, and some of the value of the information. And the, the, I mean, people can allow to have fun, that's okay. Um, but what if you hear that you've got low risk of breast cancer uh, and you might have a BRCA gene mutation before we know. Uh, if you get told that you've got a low risk of breast cancer through one of these lifestyle genetic horoscopes and you stop getting your mammograms, I think that's criminal. Um, uh, and we also don't know if having one of these lifestyle tests uh, also means that you uh, influence your insurance. Um, and whether or not the insurance company is allowed to have a look at that information and set their premiums based on this weak genetic information. That's interesting, and I shouldn't stop anybody doing it, but um, I've always been on, on the other end of the spectrum, thinking it's not terribly important. Yeah, it, it's quite fun, um, but take with a pinch of salt. They do, they do on the webpage have a lot of good information about um, talk to somebody to help interpret your data, but it's so convenient. Why would you? <laughs> you know, you kind of get the test. Yeah. Um, so, so leading on from that, one of the questions I had, and you brought it up, was your, about sending your DNA somewhere. Um, and I have a, a sort of ethical, theoretical question. I've got two questions, and I'm going to spring these out. Who owns your DNA? And who owns the data generated from your DNA? I think as an individual, I should be owning my genetic information. Uh, and uh, I think 
uh, with a lot of work done in New Zealand recently, Murray data sovereignty um, and also uh, uh, data management type systems um, where we have to be very careful um, how we share that information, who has rights to it. We can, with, you know, can we withdraw that information at any time? Um, I think there's, there are a lot of considerations that we need to take into account. Um, and increasingly, whether or not we should be doing all the genetic testing in New Zealand. At the moment, nearly all our genetic testing is sent offshore, um, and, uh, which is fine, but maybe fine, it might be the only way of getting that information. But who's going to hold on to that data and what are some, um, uh, will they respect Maori Pacific um, genomes? Um, we're not sure. Um, and so we need to have really robust systems in place to make sure that our genetic data is protected at all times. Great, thanks, Andrew. I think um, I think we should move on to the questions because we've got quite a few. Um, you're you're able to see them as well. I hope. Um, so I've got the top one, which from anonymous says research so far suggests demonstrate genetics cause personality disorders. They don't. No, I don't think they do cause personality disorders. They're associated with them. Um, uh, we we know that the number of those personality disorders are traits, uh, and there has to be some genetics involved, um, but you can never diagnose one of those disorders based on the genetics. Um, I, uh, I didn't have time to go in, into uh, some of the other genes that, are, that have been interesting recently. The, the warrior gene in New Zealand caused quite a stir in a, a Maori Pacific community, uh, which, which was associated um, with, with in the Maori community and led to a lot of devastating, it was very poorly done, poor research, um, uh, and the way it was presented was inaccurate. Um, thank you for the question about gene therapy. That's uh, so you take me back. Um, so what you do is you put a gene for the, for the normal part. Uh, so you've got a defective gene that makes a wonky protein. So you just put into the into the virus um, a normal copy of the gene and use that to infect the cell. Uh, and if, if it goes into the right place uh, inside the cell, it will make its way into the nucleus and insert itself into one of the chromosomes somewhere. Um, so it needs to go into the part of the body um, that is uh, uh, affected, and sometimes that can be quite a, a broad range. So getting the virus to infect all the parts of the body that you'd like it to um, is, is technically quite difficult. Um, but if it was in a well, like a kidney or something like that, then, then you may be able to get enough spread um, within that tissue to be able to, to um, replace the defective protein and for some sort of normality uh, to come into place so uh, um, uh, and there, I think there have been 2,000 gene therapy trials done over the last 20 years um, some of them have been very effective uh, and some of them have not but some of them have now been approved by the FDA so I think we are going to, 25 years after finishing my PhD and saying it was going to become mainstream it, it may be emerging as a new technology um, there's another aspect of this which is gene editing which which may also be be used uh, as part of gene therapy that, that may be more accurate and the medical interventions I've spoken about today, the women in the breast cancer families have already seen their sisters, their mothers, sometimes their fathers die of cancer at a very early age. So to, to undergo um, surveillance, which is sort of watching and waiting, um, may be an option for them, waiting for a mammogram to turn up to be positive. Um, but ultimately to have, to have surgery, uh, is life-saving and these aren't normal people they're not people like you and I that that, that have never um, faced uh, de significant death and um, uh, and misfortune in their family so they, they do make decisions that some of us would find slightly um, 
slightly strange or, or, or unacceptable, um, but uh, they really are life-changing. If you're talking about some of the other technologies like pre-implantation pre genetic diagnosis to remove um, uh, abnormal embryos, um, do I support that? I think there's a place for that. Um, in New Zealand, they have funding to do a certain number of those uh, of those uh, um, PGD, uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis type things. It has to be for a significant uh, or a, a disease um, that, that's serious. Uh, however, it's not always clear to me what is serious um, uh, uh, in the New Zealand context. I was approached once by a couple who had an eyelid disorder. Uh, and I'll say the name, blepharophimosis ptosis epicanthus inversus syndrome, uh, which leads to a, a slightly unusual eyelid, uh, which can be corrected by surgery. And they wanted to use PGD for that. And I didn't think that was acceptable. It wasn't serious enough. Um, so, uh, so some of that technology can be, can be of great benefit uh, and, uh, and, and, and mean that families don't live in dread that their newborn baby is going to carry the disease that's been running in their family. There's um, a few questions on epigenetics um, and whether you can change genetic outcomes by changing your environment. Yeah, I'm not great on epigenetics, <laughs> um, as Sri knows. I mean, it's important, but it's, uh, it, it's been very hard to measure, very hard to, um, uh, to treat. Um, and probably some of my colleagues are probably about to wring my neck. Um, but uh, I mean, um, epigenetics is important, our diet, um, our behaviour, uh, all the things around us can affect um, gene function. Um, and uh, so, yes, really important, very hard to measure epigenetics uh, influences, very hard to treat, um, but probably really important. Clearly, diet uh, is a major factor um, in our health and well-being and all these diseases that there's an epigenetic factor. It's just been very hard to measure. I suppose epigenetics um, is the idea of um, uh, changing something that you can inherit, um, either inheriting your individual cells, inheriting it from one another, or you inherit through the family. Um, and um, for me, I think of the nurture as being quite regulating of epigenetics, um, if you have an inherited component. So, so there's a question on, in your opinion, is nature or nurture stronger? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I say genetics is both underhyped and overhyped. Genetics is always important. It's always there. The example I used about smoking in families, uh, there's, uh, you'd think that would be the most extreme nurture type event, but there's always genetics at play. Um, but it, uh, it, it can't be. Um, I, I sometimes I think we perhaps overhype genetics. And sometimes we don't hype it enough. In some of those serious uh, cancers, Five to ten percent of all cancers is genetic, um, and we need to pay attention, attention to that. Uh, and uh, why don't get more people get gene testing done? Um, uh, you know, it's it's a really really significant way. One of the most powerful uh, medical tools is our family history. Um, and if there's disease that runs in the family, having a gene test and the thousands of genes that we now know, uh, it can be completely life changing. So um, so I'm unashamedly sometimes overhype genetics has been really important and believe in nature. But uh, some of these other conditions we've been talking about, like being gay or um, uh, the, um, things like ADHD, uh, uh, which are clearly a, um, a mixture of, of both nature and nurture. Uh, there's a question here about ADHD. Um, and, uh, and actually, I cut out a little bit I was going to talk about about ADHD. 
Um, so ADHD has always been considered a behavioral or related to food or screen time and, um, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, there has been a genetic link identified with ADHD uh, several years ago. Um, and it was quite extraordinary, the response to that. It, it was published in, in the journal Lancet. Uh, and some of the media that followed that um, went from uh, genes associated with, with ADHD to genes cause ADHD. So that immediately meant that, oh, we'll keep on feeding them Fanta. Uh, doesn't matter if they have plenty of screen time. It's, it's now a, a, you know, a genetic condition. And because it's genetic, it's now uh, medicalized. So we, there must be a treatment for it. You know, there must be a drug for it. Um, so these things are really difficult to, um, to, to actually communicate uh, in, into the community. And don't we know about science communication over the last couple of years in New Zealand related to a, a little virus that's been plaguing us, that we do need to have very clear messaging uh, and, and accurate uh, things. There is a link between all those, um, those conditions that you describe, ADHD, autism and dyslexia. Uh, when you look, do the, see the genetic studies, there are, there are genes that are in common and they each have their own unique genes as well. Um, uh, so that, that it's, that's that's a, um, it does seem to be some interrelationships between those. Uh, mother side of baldness, that's what I've always believed. Um, uh, it, it's mat uh, maternally inherited, same as some other excellent conditions, such as uh, my son has got um, colour blindness, which uh, didn't come from me, it came through his mother's side. So uh, there, there's some interesting X-linked conditions. I learned that years ago, and I don't know if it's still true. I didn't know that. <laughs> Um, I, I've got one question um, that I'm curious about. Is it possible for the effects of one genetic mutation to trigger another genetic abnormality? I can only think of one example myself, <laughs> and that's what we work on. Yes, that's right. Yep. Um, so there's, yeah, so uh, people with BRCA mutations end up with mutations in their tumours, like P53. Um, a really important gene. So, so yes, that, that, that is the, there are certain genes, every time a cell divides, there's some spelling mistakes are made. Usually one spelling mistake every time a cell divides. In, in reality, there are thousands and thousands of spelling mistakes each time a cell divides. It's sort of like your, your spell checker on, on your word program. And it, the, the spell checker goes through and corrects all the mistakes, but it doesn't get them all. And it often leaves one or two. If you have a mutation in the spell check, uh, which are um, special, uh, special genes that are involved in, in genome surveillance, such as BRCA1 and BRCA2 and a whole lot of others, uh, then that increases the risk of gene mutations happening uh, and the cells go into the spiral of uh, uh, downhill spiral in terms of accumulation of, uh, accumulation of mutations. So yes, the answer to that is yes, we do know about some genes that are really important for maintenance of the genome. There's a question that's just snuck in um, at the bottom that uh, I think is is a curiosity because it's something that someone we know close is very interested in, and it is what about mitochondrial genes? What about mitochondrial genes? I, again, it was one of the things like microbiomes and um, uh, epigenetics. I didn't have time to talk. They are really important. Uh, mitochondrial genes um, uh, are significant causes of disease. A number of different diseases associated with them. Um, we now they're supposed to be maternally inherited. I saw an article today, so that, that, that we need to um, rewrite our textbooks. They can be paternally in, inherited. Um, so um, yes, mitochondria are really important. So there, there is a criminal gene, uh, the monoamine oxidase, um, where an Italian judge gave somebody a reduced sentence because the genes made him do it. 
Um, was the, uh, insurance companies using genetic data to raise premiums? Is this happening? Yes. So that's uh, absolutely, and, and I've launched a, a, a campaign about this. We didn't know this was happening. Um, so uh, insurance companies are um, allowed to use genetic information, genetic testing, to set their premiums or decide not to give you a, um, a insurance policy at all. Uh, we're, out of, we're the only country like us that are still doing that. Um, and uh, I've had communication in the last week um, by a woman that had a BRCA gene mutation who her premiums were raised um, because, uh, and the, the danger of this is, is that um, we've seen from international studies that when people are told that getting a gene test can, um, um, can affect their, their insurance, about 10 to 30% actually decline having a, a gene test done in the future. Uh, and we think that's, that's, that's really da dangerous. Uh, the amount of extra information that insurance companies get from the gene test ahead of just knowing that they've got a family history isn't that great. Um, uh, but if it's meaning that people aren't getting life-saving genetic testing, um, that's, that's, uh, I think that's really criminal. Uh, question from Gemma, how do we get gene tested? If you suspected you had something running in your family, you can discuss that with your GP and you get a re referral to the regional genetic services that are based, there's some based here in Auckland, uh, where you might get to see a genetic counsellor or a medical geneticist and you could, could discuss your condition and your family setting uh, and they could discuss with you whether it's likely to be a genetic condition, what sort of gene tests are available and what the implications might be for you. I'm sort of summarising an entire uh, people's career in, in, in less than 30 seconds. Um, so yes, it is possible to get genetic testing done easily in New Zealand. Oh, I like this one at the bottom. What are the next frontiers for genetics? Um, well, I think we're all going to get our genome sequence probably at birth. Um, uh, and so that piece of that information will be stashed away uh, and uh, um, unraveling what it all means, um, means that some of us are going to have to become gene coaches uh, where we're going to have to understand the interaction between our genetics and lifestyle and health and well-being. Um, uh, but it's inevitable that um, genetic information has become more and more important uh, in, in, our, in the health environment and has become, become an important component um, of what we're going to do in the future uh, in terms of, of the medical system and, and our health and well-being. As, and as we begin to understand more and more about our genomes and interactions with other, with, um, other systems, it's going to become more and more important. Great. That's all we've got time for, Andrew. Thank you so much. A, a virtual round of applause. And unfortunately, we're not propping up the bar, so we're not having a pint, but a virtual round of applause for Andrew. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today from wherever you are in the world. Um, and so it's time to close the session. Uh, we hope, hope you've enjoyed the topic and we've had some great questions. So it sparked some curiosity in all of you. Um, so just to, to finish, Raising the Bar Home Edition is a series of six um, speakers over six weeks. Today was your first speaker, so you've got five more to come. So thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. We hope to see you again soon. Kite Thank you, everybody.